0: The Gospel of Mark. It's the second Gospel of of the four. And I want to remind us, when we come to the Gospels, we're not looking at biographies. The Gospels definitely tell about the life and works of, of Jesus Christ, but they were written for a very specific purpose. Each one of them intended for an audience and and they have similarities but they address particular issues and specific matter that that case is true with with mark as we come to the gospel of mark i would encourage you to turn there but to better understand this gospel i think it's important that we we take some time To understand the man the the writer of this gospel Mark Mark was not one of the twelve disciples he was not one of the twelve apostles which which surprises some people when you ask who the twelve disciples were usually they'll rattle off well Matthew Mark Luke and John Mark was not one of those he was, he was very close to the disciples, though. He knew them. There's evidence that shows that he was probably there uh, the, the night that Jesus was betrayed. He was very close to Peter. When you look and read through the Scriptures, you see that this, this man, Mark, also went by the name John Mark. Mark. We, we see that in, uh, in Acts quite a bit. We, we see that Mark was possibly quite wealthy. The church would meet in his home, which meant that he had a larger dwelling place and would be able to host the church. And you have to remember, the church, early church, I mean, first day, they had 5,000 people instantly. I mean, that's a big church. Barnabas. Oh, uh, we all love Barnabas, don't we? Ah, you know, my prayer is always that there is at least one or two good Barnabases in every church. An encourager. And Mark's related to Barnabas. We see that, that Mark would go on the first missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul. And he started out on the second one, but, well, he and Paul had some differences. And they split ways, and Barnabas... Took John Mark. Later on, Paul would say, That Mark fellow, that John Mark, he's useful to me in ministry. He commended the work and ministry of, of Mark. But Mark spent a great deal of time with Peter. We see that in the scriptures and we see that from, from history. And as you read through Mark, you you see the influence of of Peter in Mark, for sure. In in Acts, Peter gives his report to the Jerusalem Council, and as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you see that similar approach and, and narrative come out in the Gospel of Mark. As you read through Mark, you see that we have a lot of information about Peter. In fact, more so than, than any of the other Gospels. But there's also some things that are omitted. Some of the positive things that Peter did, those things are omitted there. But we, we see the fingerprints of Peter's influence in his life. In fact, when the Gospel begins, I mean, it virtually begins with God or Jesus, one and the same, but Jesus calling forth Peter. Look with me. Chapter 1 of Mark, verse 16, it says, And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew, the sons... I lost my place there. Nope, there it is. Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. I love this next phrase. I have a t-shirt that has it as well. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Oh, and Peter became quite the fisherman of man. But it begins with that call and the narrative as it unfolds we see that that peter had a great influence on this gospel giving it the apostolic authority that was necessary for the new testament scriptures we see that mark was greatly accepted by the early church and and john and others would, would reference to it mark would write this narrative. Not an apostle, not a disciple, but there was an urgency for him to write it. There was a reason. He had a burden to share the good news. Let's look at that burden. Why would he write this? What was the the emphasis that he had? Well, the burden of Mark was for Rome. Rome at this time, the, Rome, the city and the Roman Empire was greatly influenced by slavery. In fact, in the city, we would see at this period of time, for every three citizens, free people, there was a slave. That's quite a ratio, three to one. In the empire itself, there was fifteen to twenty percent of the population were slaves. That's important as we look at the emphasis of, of Mark. Caesar, the emperor of Rome, was considered deity. I know a few leaders that have in the past thought themselves to be deity, right? Well, the culture itself was all about gratifying self, esteeming one's own position. It was status was everything in this culture. Hard to relate with that living in America, but status was everything. Your self was the main priority in your life, and sin was rampant. Can you relate with a culture like that? the the mumblings say you do and mark had a burden for these people mark saw their need for god their need for jesus do we have that when we look at our culture do we look at our culture with disdain and grumbling Or do we look with a heart that's burdened for their need for Jesus Christ? I'll be honest, some days it's easy to lean towards grumbling. None of you struggle with that, I'm sure. Mark's Gospel. You're reading along as we're going book by book. Mark's Gospel is is very brief. He's very to the point, and he writes in a rapid manner. His style of writing, it seems almost rushed. You go from one thing to the next, and he addresses his Gentile audience, and he points them to their greatest need. I wonder how often we take time to point people to their greatest need. Feeling the rush of life, we don't have the urgency for the gospel. Mark interprets several Aramaic words for his audience. See, being in Rome, in the Roman culture, their first language would have been Latin. And he takes time to to emphasize certain Aramaic words like the words of Christ at the cross where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He uses Latin terms that they would be able to identify with. Mark is doing everything to, to relate to his audience to point them to Christ. It's interesting, as we go through Mark, it has the least amount of prophecy in it. Where Matthew is just overflowing with prophecy, Mark has very little. In fact, the only prophet that he really references is Isaiah. Thank you, Mark, for reading that. He goes and points back to Isaiah, who and Isaiah presented the Messiah, the one that would come as a suffering servant. Because, well, his audience needed to understand that this one Christ would come to suffer, would come to serve. There's a stark contrast as, as Peter, as Peter, no, Mark, as, as Mark takes time to present Jesus to this Roman culture, to these Roman citizens, Gentiles. This is how he presents Jesus. Turn with me to chapter 10, verse 43. Many declare this passage right here the emphasis of of Mark's whole gospel. 43 begins this way, but it is not the way among you. Jesus has been describing how the world lives. But whoever wishes to become great, oh, that would have piqued the uh, interest of, of the Romans. Greatness, yes! We all aspire to be great. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoa. That contradicts. And whoever wishes to be first, you shall be slave of all. How could this one, how could this Jesus say such things? And then Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man, often how Jesus would depict Himself in the Gospel of Mark, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for the many. What a contrast. This Roman society, as they would read this gospel, this good news that Mark is declaring, they would see Jesus, the one that is declared the Son of God. He is deity. And the deity they've seen... Elevate self. Elevate says the last are definitely last. The lowest are worthless. But here comes one. And Jesus, the very Son of God, is servant to all. He's a king. But He's also the sacrifice. What a contrast. You know... We're going to look at Mark in in brevity this morning. I'd encourage you to read it. It's only only 16 short chapters. But look how Mark begins this Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very Son of God. As we look at Mark in an overview, we are looking at just the beginning. I love how Mark begins that. He goes, there's so much more. What I'm going to record, he's saying, there is more to it. This is just the beginning of what God is going to do. Think about this. Right out of the gates, Mark is declaring that God sent his son that Jesus Christ is the very son of God look at this in in several places throughout as we go through this this narrative of Mark we see over and over that Jesus is identified as the son of God he is deity folks that's very important for us to understand today too He was not just a good man. He was not a prophet. Not just a good teacher. As many around him would declare. But as Peter would declare, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was God in the flesh. Right out the get-go, Peter begins with, He is God. If you get nothing else today, understand that in verse 1 chapter or verse chapter 1 verse 11 at the baptism god says this is my son again at the mount of transfiguration he says this is my son whom i am well pleased and then oh my goodness At the very climax of the book, there's a powerful statement, not made by God, not made by a Jewish man, but a Roman soldier. The Roman soldier looks. I, I want you to turn there. I want you to see his words. Chapter 15, verse 30. This is the declaration of a high-ranking Roman. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark begins his Gospel declaring Jesus is the Son of God. God over multiple times says, this is My Son. And at the very climax, a Roman says, this was the Son of God. Immediately. It's interesting... When you read this, there is an urgency as you go through. There is a word that is used, and it's almost comical how often it's used, but the word is immediately. We are going through in rapid succession, rapid fire, and Mark continues to use this word immediately 42 times. 42 times, it begins with the baptism of Jesus and it goes all the way to Pilate. Mark is trying to get you someplace and get you there quick. We see Jesus as one who is serving. A servant who serves his master upon the master's request or order or command, immediately that slave would respond. Jesus, as as the suffering servant, as the servant, does the will of the Father immediately. We see Him respond without hesitation to the Father's wishes. What an example set forth. Oh, that you and I would have that heart to immediately respond to what God calls us to do, to how He calls us to behave. There's a forward movement as you go through this book. Mark is pushing you to get you to something that's important. He wants you to understand who Christ is, what He is saying, what He is doing, so you can understand His sacrifice. And He's pushing you forward to get there. Mark strives throughout his entire Writing the good news to understand you have a need. You, I, have a need, our greatest need. Often, as Americans, we de- determine things to be needs that are absolutely worthless. There are things we elevate and that have no point. And the distractions of this world quickly flood in and they distract, they blind us to our greatest need, and that is Jesus Christ. This simple generation needed a Savior. Our simple generation needs a Savior. And when we look around our room, we need to understand the need is still here today. If anything, the urgency is even greater. In rapid presentation, Jesus is presented to His audience. Mark declares, there is one who has come to serve mankind. Why would they look at a servant? Why would they look at one who came to serve you overlook them you forget about them don't you yet mark pictures this servant as one with absolute power and absolute authority we see in mark an amazing detailed narrative of Christ's power over the demons. They beg and plead. They have no power over Him whatsoever. We see Jesus do more miracles in Mark than any other Gospel. Eighteen different miracles. Presenting His power and His authority, Jesus proves that He is deity. He proves He is the Son of God. He is healing and He is forgiving. You're like, wait a minute. I love this passage. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is a beautiful, beautiful narrative of the power of His healing and the power to forgive. Listen with me. Verse 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts interesting this wasn't an outward conversation They watched what Jesus was doing, watched what He was saying, and there was a response in the heart. Oh, that we come to God's Word and have a right heart response. Why? Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone immediately I love how Jesus deals with heart issues immediately immediately Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves said to them why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up immediately, picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I love that Jesus first takes care of his greatest needs. Your sins are forgiven. That's the man's greatest need. But to prove that he was God, had the power to heal, the power to forgive, he says, get up and walk. It's interesting as we look at Mark, we see Jesus reach out to the brokenhearted. To the down and out, outcast. Mark pushes through all of that in in rapid succession to get to the final eight days of Jesus' life. In fact, the final eight days of his life will account for 40% of Mark's Gospel. 40%. Mark wants his audience to understand what this servant came to do. And he came to be a sacrifice. He came to be their Savior. That is the emphasis. And the message is clear that Jesus gives. He declares himself to be the Son of God, the one who will do this work. He prepares his followers knowing what is coming, knowing that his death is just on the horizon. He prepares those men for the work that they will do. And in clear rejection, we see the last immediately. The last immediately is recorded in chapter 15. Chapter 15 Jesus has been arrested. And verse 1 says this early in the morning the chief priest with the elders and scribes and whole council immediately <clears throat> held a consultation and binding jesus they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him are you The king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. What a statement. Mark's gospel climaxes to the cross. To the moment at Calvary where we read the bold statement made by that Roman centurion. This was the Son of God. Because as that Roman looked at Jesus Christ, he saw he died. Sacrificed. For your sin and mine. Just like the prophet Isaiah would declare that the Messiah would be that suffering servant taking your sin, my sin, upon Him at the cross. For the wages of sin is death. And Jesus died in your place and mine. The Son of God coming to serve man's greatest need. We needed a sacrifice. We needed the blood of the Lamb of God. We needed a Savior from our sin. That's our greatest need. That's mankind's greatest need still. Jesus's willingness to bear our sin, your sin and my sin, is his, it's the epitome of his servanthood. Think about that. He didn't deserve it. The greatest, he's the King of kings, Lord of lords, the Son of God, but he served you and I and took our place. The message doesn't lose power. Mark closes his Gospel with Sunday morning. Sunday morning. They've laid him in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. And there, sitting with the stone rolled away, is an angel with a message. Look at this message. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome brought spices so that they might come. And anoint him very early on the first day of the week they came to the tomb when the Sun had risen that's why we call our service at the cemetery the Sun has risen they were saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb looking up they saw that the stone had been rolled away although it was extremely large you do realize the stone wasn't rolled away so he could rise it was so they could see in. entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe And they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He was dead. He was sacrificed. He has risen. There you go. You're getting it. Good. He has. He has risen. He is not here. Behold. Meaning, look. Here is the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out. They fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I love that Mark records for us the angel's words. And Peter too. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three times. I love that when we declare Jesus is risen, we share that truth with those who have regrets. That risen Savior is for the ones who have regrets too. Go and tell them. Go and tell everyone. Go and tell even the ones who have regrets. Regrets about me. How they treated me. What they've said. Go and tell them they need to know. How would you like to be a Roman knowing that it was your government that threw Him up on a cross? It was your people that convicted Him. You see, the Jews were part of His crucifixion. The Romans were part of His crucifixion. Mankind, sin, put Jesus on that cross and He willingly went there for you and I. The end? His Gospel begins with the beginning of the good news. The good news is still going forth. It's still going forth in rapid succession. There's an urgency. Oh, church, there needs to be an urgency. But how Mark ends his Gospel is actually quite intriguing. Look at your Bibles, because I don't know how your Bibles look, but I want you to look at the last chapter. I'm going to put on a little teacher hat for just a moment. In your Bibles, there's been great diligence. over the years by those who would scribe and copy the Scriptures. Great diligence has has been brought forth to bring you and I the very words of God, the Scriptures. In your copy, I want you to look at verse 9. Some of your Bibles may not have a verse 9. It might be down at the bottom in in a footnote some may have brackets on verse 9 to 20 others may have a cliff note something there but verses 9 through 20 are set apart it's interesting that in all copies of the scripture they are not removed here's the reasoning now, I always encourage people to go to the front of your Bible. It actually has instructions. It will explain when something is in brackets or italics or, or bold or whatever. It explains what that means. But when we come to Mark, at least in the New American Standard, it's in brackets 9 through 20. Here's why. And I appreciate this. Verses 9 through 20 cannot be found in two of the major manuscripts the earliest manuscripts that we have of the gospel of mark did you know that you would if you understood if you actually you know it's typical we get something we don't read the instructions how many of you are guilty of that oh i am i'm I'll, i'll spend hours trying to figure it out and then i'll read the instructions oh well that makes sense Your Bibles actually explain what that means. And and we come to that, and, and it's letting us know that those manuscripts don't have those verses, but all the manuscripts after those two earliest ones have these verses in it. So the scribes, the ones copying the Scriptures and presenting them to us, are left in a quandary. Do we omit them? Do we keep them? Well, there's a danger in, in taking away from God's Word. But they wanted to present it in, in as accurate of a way as they could. So they said, listen, this is what's happened. So we're giving you both, going to let you make the decision here. Those, those last verses would have been around while the other, some of the other apostles were still around. Even the Apostle John. Church history doesn't show that there is a contradiction with that. Um, It just reveals that there's some manuscripts that didn't. There's there's multiple possibilities of what could have happened. Some hold more water than others we we do notice that when you look at verses 9 through 20 the greek is different the verbiage is different all of that the sentence structure is different than what mark wrote so most likely verses 9 through 20 were written by someone different it's possible mark didn't have time to finish his gospel it's possible that Somebody else felt or the apostles felt that this portion needed to be added to the gospel and they added it later. Quite possible. Here's the thing. Rather than omit these words, we're going to look at both endings. Verse 8, verse 20, and look at the endings. And You know what? Both are powerful. I personally hold that Mark ended at verse 8. Someone else added 9 through 20 later on. I wouldn't go and make a a theology out of anything in verses 9 through 20 that's not seen anywhere else in Scripture. Some have, and it's kind of scary. Okay, But I appreciate the openness of those who have copied the Scriptures and their careful presentation of them. And as we look at them, we, we see two powerful things. In verse 8, Jesus is risen. Go and tell. Tell the disciples. Tell Peter. Tell those with regret. Go and tell. Don't be afraid. And they were nervous going forward. How many of us in our our sharing the good news have ever encountered fear or trepidation mixed with excitement because there's an opportunity but oh, the fear of doing that, right? We, We experience both. But Mark ends with that urgency. Just the same if we go to verse 20, we see Jesus' Word telling them to go out. He actually says, shame on you for not believing what the women told you. He says, you're to believe this. You're to preach it. And don't be afraid. Similar message, isn't it? We come to the close of, of Mark. With an urgency. An urgency to get the good news of Jesus Christ. To those who don't know Him. To a culture that is steeped in self. In sin. When Mark ends... He presents the suffering servant as one who is worthy. Jesus is worthy. We see His deity. We understand He is holy. The Son of God. And we see the one that served our greatest need for a Savior. Let's pray. God, God, you sent your son thank you oh god this morning that that very message of sending your son brings praise to our lips to our hearts thank you because we needed you to send him we needed a savior god i pray that believers here today would understand the message we have before us God, that there would be the same urgency to go and declare Your Son. Oh, and God, I pray if there's any here today listening who don't know You, who have not recognized You for who You are, who have not seen their need for You, I pray that need would be very evident this morning. God, that they would turn to You, the One who sacrificed for their sin. Oh God, thank You. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.